Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, February the 15th, 2023, and the tech headlines remain completely dominated by chat GPT. Uh, Elon Musk apparently warned that uh, AI is one of the biggest risks to civilization. He said that on CNBC. Some people might suggest that Elon Musk himself is a larger risk, but that's another story. Um, lots of concern about whether or not chat GPT will take our jobs. It's smart conversation. So uh, most of us... Uh, particularly perhaps people like myself, uh, our careers, our value is based on smart conversation. One wonders when chat GPT will appear on Keen On. Um, some people are concerned, according to the Wall Street Journal, that chat GPT isn't quite ready for the enterprise, but it's certainly changing everything in Silicon Valley. Lots of uncertainty and insecurity at Google. Microsoft see this as a great opportunity, so it's restarted the great tech wars uh, that happened between Google and Microsoft in the 90s and in the early part of the 21st century. Um, and of course, it's still, there's a new chat GPT war, just as there's a Google versus Microsoft AI war. So there's also a war uh, when it comes to chat GPT between China and the United States, um, and of course, the New York Times in its cute way even turned ChatGPT uh, into a Valentine's Day feature, creating an AI card for Valentine's. What it all means is that ChatGPT is real. It, to many of us, it seems almost magical that we can have a machine that speaks as coherently and intelligently as human beings, and it brings to mind the whole question of how can the tech community, for example, create chat GPT, but still be stuck with an archaic form of passwords? We are all stuck with passport words. We can't remember what they are. Um, we're not sure which one we use for each site. And for all the magical qualities when it comes to the advancement of AI, we seem to be stuck almost in the 20th century when it comes to passwords. The uh, New York Times had an interesting piece recently from January talking about the end of passwords and what comes next. I've read that story on lots of tech publications for years and nothing ever seems to come next. Um, so there'll be an interesting opportunity to talk to um, one of the tech community's leading authority on passwords, Philip Dunkelberger. He's the president and CEO of a company called Knock Knock Labs, which is uh, focused on uh, updating and developing the password. And Philip is joining us from Saratoga, California, just up the coast from San Francisco. Philip, why are we so slow when it comes to passwords? We can invent chat GPT, we meaning the tech people of Silicon Valley. They can, inf they can invent uh, AI, but we still can't quite get passwords right. And passwords are a blight for any computer user. 
Yeah, that they are. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is, is that it took a long time for people to figure out the web and other kinds of things. And if you go from enterprise computing, where people started mainly using computing through the epoch of personal computers, uh, passwords followed it from a mainframe to PCs, now to phones. Everything we use was centered around a password. So we trained the users to use passwords. And we trained the users that that was some sort of their identifier or identity. And users and people who provide services around that are slow to change. So passwords are a 50-year-old convenience that has needed to go away probably you know, within the first 10 years, even on a mainframe, because they're hard to use, as you said, hard to remember. Today, they're the number one attack surface that people try to steal to uh, do things like account takeover. They're key to people trying to get you to give you the password in phishing. So yeah, it, it is a major problem, and it's something that we've got to think differently about. Um, we've got to innovate around it. And that's fundamentally what we've been working on for the past few years, is how do we innovate away from passwords and make it much easier and more secure to log in, get your business done, and get out and get on with your life. Do we really need passwords, Philip? Uh, what about bio solutions? What about um, uh, a fingerprint or, 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 or the ability for your computer to access uh, your iris in your eyes? Uh, when we go through security now at airports, we don't need passwords. The, the machine recognizes who we are, and that's relatively high security, certainly as high security as um, we need on the computer. It's a great question. There are so many other conveniences and better ways to go. The real key is how do you hook them up? How do you build a road for those things to run on like the password? It's called the last mile problem. How do we build all of this great technology and yet we still have to deliver it to a variety of different endpoints and a variety of different uh, regulatory regimes, privacy regimes, security regimes. How do we do all of that and make it consistent that a development team can, can point at that and make sure it's going to work? So fundamentally, what we've developed along with the industry broadly, as the New York Times article uh, alluded to, is the ability to really start moving away from passwords as a convenience, moving to things like being able to hook up biometrics or any number of ways you hold the phone. Uh, uh, iris scans, all of those things. Finally, the industry has come together uh, with a protocol, a, a snap plug and play protocol called FIDO, Fast Identity Online. On top of that, they built this uh, uh, convenience called Passkeys, and it's the first industry agreement. You usually don't see, as you pointed out, Google and Microsoft working through that. And what is Passkey? Today, what Passkeys are is simply the ability, much like you do at home, to store and retrieve your pass keys. So as we migrate from passwords to pass keys, instead of storing large databases of passwords in the back, you will simply have a series of keys that lock and unlock uh, the websites and the uh, essentially the entitlements you're looking for, much like you do on the keys in your pocket. So it follows- oh, those, keys, um, Philip, those keys are going away. I, I drive a Tesla. I've never had a Tesla key. Uh, everything is accessed through my phone. Why can't all this be driven through our phones? Ah, it's a great question. So pass keys work with your devices. The, the brilliance of the key itself is that it can be put on a device, can be used and your phone can become essentially your login. Today, Docomo, one of the largest, uh, most modern telcos in the world, they do everything with their phones. They buy everything with nested credit cards or wallets on their phone using the FIDO protocol. 
So there are literally tens of millions of people using this today, and it's it's evolving. But so explain, um, Philip, explain, uh, and as as you suggested, the the New York Times piece on the end of passwords focused on this idea of a pass key. What exactly is it? Uh, essentially, what a pass key is is the ability to store. If you think about storing passwords today, we store them in databases. We retrieve them, uh, much to your point that users can't remember them. They're, they're hard we to try to retrieve them. Most of us struggle to do that. Yeah, most of us have to reset them or put in a new one, especially if we don't use the website all the time. The idea of a passkey is that it's a cryptographic algorithm that is public-private key pairs for those users who are, like the technology of encryption. It's an encryption-based thing, strongest way we know how to do something, that lets a user set a passkey and the passkey has a corresponding lock and unlock on the back end. And as you essentially build passkeys, what they are is the large vendors, Apple, Google, Microsoft have agreed. That's a great way instead of using a password. You've got your own passkey. It's unique to you, your device, your application. And then the passkey itself can be stored and retrieved from either a cloud service or local uh, storage. Uh, you can embed it in things like your phone and use your phone to log in. You use your iris or your fingerprint or your voice on your phone. And all of that is then based on something far more strong and far easier to replace than a password. password what happens if you, uh, I mean, it's, of course, everyone's going to be thinking about this. What happens if you lose your phone or your laptop? Well, not someone have complete access to your life? Can't they simply become you? Uh, no, actually, the beauty of passkeys and your point about biometrics is the way that the, the protocol that they're based on work, basically, when you get enrolled. So think about enrollment is logging in, giving your personal information, and they enroll you into a service. The brilliance of what they came up with or the industry came up with in, with building the protocol and passkeys on top of it is very simply this. You're a unique identifier that's enrolled you, your device, and the service from day one. It also enrolls the way that you authenticated and can enroll multiple ways, your voice, a fingerprint, how you hold your phone. All of those things build identifiers that then don't leave the secure enclave on your device, meaning we don't store those your private information doesn't go across and be stored anywhere else. It's stored to the device. And only when you unlock it, you unlock the device to the service, that service has the ability to say, oh, I enrolled you with this device, this service. You, you know, I can use all the other ways that we authenticate. It was on this phone. It was with this camera on the phone that you took the picture. Uh, all of those things are built into building that challenge. And it uses a challenge essentially to say, is this the same phone, user, and device that I enrolled at the very beginning? Philip, do you have any kids? Uh, do I have kids? Yes, I do. I have two cats. <laughs> ah, well, you don't. You don't have children. If you had children, you know that children love sharing your passwords to Netflix and Apple Music and so on. And I know Netflix is clamped down on this. Can you? share your pass key with someone? And will it finally mean that my kids will have to get their own Netflix accounts? It, it means ultimately the, the joke of why we named the company Knock Knock in the very beginning. When I say Knock Knock, what do you say back to me? Who's there? So on, right. that, on that who's there, what we've had- right. if, you didn't, if you said N-O-K, N-O-K, I'm, I'm not sure, but you'd need to put the K on. <laughs> the The- Attitude of it is very much the, 
no, you can, they can use your device if they enroll or you allow them to be enrolled to something like Netflix. The idea is, is that the device, the service, and who you enroll is separated. You can have multiple, essentially, keys on that phone and allow different users to use it, but they have to have been enrolled. You can do things like set parental. Can they then, are we going to have a situation where someone steals my phone and then they have a whole team of hackers enrolling me once they have the phone? They, remember, they have the phone. You have to unlock the device itself with your biometric. You have to do it and, and, and you have to unlock it. It's what's called a three-way bind. It binds you, the device, and the service in one essentially uh capability. So a hacker trying to hack you, best case, if they steal, let's say using a fingerprint, and they steal your fingerprint off of a glass, and they do a gummy bear attack on your fingerprint sensor. And on the back end system, it's saying it looks like it looks like Phil's phone, it looks like Phil's fingerprint. But we're not sure that Phil is now trying to move $10 million out of his account or a million or 500k He's doing something unnatural or the phone is not in the location that he enrolled it in. You can then go out of band of the phone and ask for additional information, much like they do today when somebody doesn't get a clean password from you. Hey, we're not, the password isn't making sense. Either re-enroll yourself or give us more information. The great thing about the protocol itself is it has the out of band capability up to and including, hey, we're not getting the information we need, call the call center. You know, let's what go back to the, the um... your old technology. Does this mean anything for the dark web? Does, is this a boon or a, a challenge to the dark web? I assume that people wouldn't want to use this on the dark web anyway. No, it, it actually becomes a very strong identifier that you can mesh with other identity uh, capability. Is this Phil's phone? Is this Phil's laptop? Is he doing the same behaviors that he does when he comes into the PayPal site? Is he... Um, if we ask for additional information, is he looking for things that are not, you know, in his essentially makeup on the back end? And who is this looking? Is this some AI working for the bank or for a credit card or for PayPal? No, it's not some AI. The beauty of it is a public-private key pair. In other words, when I basically enroll you, I create a key that remains on your device. That's your private key. The public key replaces a lot of the other information I used to use. Knowledge-based, those things that says, hey, I've enrolled this person with this device. They've got a key and I've got a key. When you go to log in, the backend system queries your phone and says, there should be a FIDO key here because that's what we've set up. Please swipe your finger. And that's what instructions to do or take a selfie or look into the camera. That simple capability that challenge then is uh, cryptographically challenged. And it says, this is the key, this is the phone, and it is the authenticator on the device that we enrolled. So if I take a picture and it's not me, I swipe a finger that's not me, it doesn't do anything. Philip, so what impact could this theoretically have on the crisis these days with fake news and the unreliability of information and anonymity online and the way in which some companies and states use the internet to spread propaganda and lies. Is it possible that this new technology, which is an authenticator, as you say, will ultimately mean that social media platforms, for example, can eliminate 
anonymity and everyone has to prove that they are Philip Dunkelberger or Andrew Keane before they post as them on, on, on these platforms? Andrew, you have kind of jumped the shark a little bit in the future of this, but that's exactly, if you get to content management, both content coming and going on the internet and the monumental, you know, fake news, all the other things, yes, this has the ability to do that. It gives you a much stronger note. Is this the person that we enrolled into our service? And is this the same person that is posting these things? Is this somebody that is known to us? Is this somebody who is, is coming in from a different location than they claimed before in their identity? So it's a much stronger identity proof capability to be able to say, if you want to be on our platform, we're going to enroll you. The backend system controls the enrollment. That's the beauty of it. So if Facebook, Facebook could integrate this or Twitter or Instagram. Some people might say, Philip, this is all very well, but what does this mean for the future of whistleblowers? What does this mean for political dissidents in China or Iran or Russia? Uh, I think the, the, the key capability of, of that is, giving my background was pretty good privacy, if you know PGP and your background, um, of privacy is one of the key things on this. There is no personally identifiable information that is stored or kept uh, essentially around the key pairs. So once it's deployed, it is, it is considered globally one of the best practices for, for, for doing privacy types of things because we don't transmit personal information. All you have is a key pair. And once you've enrolled it and you're really you know, enrolling the device and the user, the biometric never leaves your phone. The, the other information about your phone that they already collect is all they're gonna get. So what it really means is you can do anonymous kinds of things using this much better than you know exposing all your information to be stored. Then, uh, like, you know, we, we talked about uh, Musk warning us about AI. Musk, of course, just acquired Twitter. Mm -hmm. Twitter change its rules so that you have to have one of these pass keys before you enroll on Twitter. And then it becomes really impossible to post anonymously on Twitter. It would, it would be very difficult to spoof if their system is set up to say strong authentication. We're going to make you strongly authenticate to the service before we let you post. Yes. Now, an ad model probably is not going to like that very much because they just want to sell ads to whoever wants to post and use the system. So the economics behind it are, are going to be different. But to your point of, of, of actual view of what this can do, we've had people in uh, voting systems saying this is a better way to vote electronically. Right. I was thinking voting. I mean, we know all about Donald Trump's unproven, unfounded accusations against the American electoral system. Presumably, if this is used for electronic voting in the United States or in countries like Taiwan and Estonia that are currently pioneering electronic voting, this, this could make it 100%, well, maybe 100% might be a slight exaggeration, but certainly much more secure than the current system. The, the four drivers, to your point, very simply were this when we built the protocol. And we built it with industry. You, you pointed out early on, Google, Microsoft, and, and, um, and Apple, they can't agree on the time of day when they're looking at the same clock. You know, we know that. We know they're always looking for a competitive advantage, and yet they've all come together along with people like IBM and Intel and, and big international companies like uh, the big banks in Europe and Asia saying this is better security. It makes it much easier to use to your point of doing biometrics. 
It is privacy preserving because we're not collecting data on the user. You know, we're, we're binding keys together. And lastly, it's a much cheaper way to build strong authentication into the infrastructure of the internet. That was its design points 11 years ago when the founder came up with this idea that we raised money on and started the FIDO Alliance, which is a nonprofit. Uh, we enrolled a lot of companies to work together on the spec. And, and ultimately today, that's what you're starting to hear about is 11 years of industry actually cooperating, trying to solve the password problem, trying to actually do something about it. Philip, uh, we've done lots of shows about the role of the blockchain. Um, one with Dalton Tapscott, and it seems rather archaic, pre-AI, that he argued that blockchain was the new internet, and obviously many shows on crypto. How does what you're talking about play into the blockchain? I, I assume that, that they may be in parallel, but they're intimately connected in a way. And what you're providing with this passkey technology, you and the rest of the industry, establishes a kind of blockchain transparency. Is that fair? Uh, it's, it's one way to look at it. You know, blockchain uh, is, is a great technology. You, you, to make it work universally at scale on the internet, you're gonna have to get to be able to do heterogeneous private transactions and anonymous transactions is at its core. Um, we've done work where we can put FIDO, the protocol, passkey, the built on it, on a blockchain and use blockchain for even additional security. We can give most blockchains use a username and password to log into and get enrolled in so we can replace that, that attack vector with this. Um, it, it does play well there and it is a good use of two different technologies to give better usability and better security when you're transacting with crypto on the internet. And what about crypto more broadly? Does it change? The challenge is we've had a huge crypto meltdown, as you know, over the last six months to a year in Silicon Valley. People don't talk about it as much, but it hasn't disappeared. There are still many crypto companies from Coinbase to Circle that don't seem to be going away. Uh, can this help make the case for crypto, give people more security, make them feel uh, more secure around it? I think that the structure around the crypto community and security is like a lot of other things, um, you know, they went ahead with it trying to replace other types of currencies. We've been involved with that from my PGP days early on, uh, way, way back, late 99, early 2000, of how do you secure essentially digital money, digital currency? And this would play a big role in helping to secure that. We've, we've built full demonstrations for people like Coinbase for multi-party transactions where you need to know, I want to buy a car on the internet. I need to know the car is real. I need to know the people selling it are real. I need to know the bank accounts are real. I need to know that my own ability to pay is real. All those components have to come together to transact to use uh, a digital currency transaction on the internet in a multi-part play. And this would help immensely in that, and also keeping the parties validated and yet anonymous, which is what the key to crypto should be. So yes, this would help uh, very much so in that play. The credit card companies must love what you're doing. What, what do the feds think? How, how much, how involved have they been in these industry alliances? 
the feds, the feds are, are in, I would say, in a mode right now where they are fully on the bandwagon of FIDO and what it can do as a protocol. I just explain, Philip, sorry I, to jump in here. FIDO is the industry-wide agreement from Microsoft to Google to Apple to guys, uh, startup guys like yourself. That's the core tech. That's the core defining uh, standard. W3C has made it a standard. It's in every browser. It's out there at the endpoint. You can now turn it on and use it. It's a global standard from the W3C. All major browsers support it. You can then take that capability to government standards that are now using it, uh, like the new uh, authentication standard where Jen Easterly, who's in charge of uh, infrastructure for the government, there's an executive order from President Biden saying, we've got to stop using uh, weak authentication. We've got to move to a better, what they call phishing resistant authentication. And they've chosen this protocol as one of the basis of doing that. So they're deeply involved and in moving very quickly uh, through an executive order to try to get the hacking to stop and the phishing to stop from ostensibly government sites. Uh, other industry organizations, uh, such as the Cloud Security Alliance, uh, what's best practices in, cl in cloud, and they're looking at FIDO as a great protocol where you've got a multi-tenant cloud, right? You've got your data mixed with other people. How do we know people accessing that data both externally and internally are authorized to do that? How do we put strong authentication easily on those systems? So yes, the feds are involved, uh, global, the Five Eyes group is involved, PSD2, the, the standard for- And the banks, the credit card companies, the MasterCard, the visas must love this though. All, all the credit card companies, big initiative coming out of the last year of identity. How do we get the merchant banks, the merchants themselves, uh, and ultimately the customers of those merchants to be able to do this easily where card not present can be present. Um, one simple thing that we did was we enabled if your wallet containing your credit card, which we can put a FIDO essentially key on your credit card, your digital wallet or your physical wallet, if that's present and you're doing a transaction online, it can literally tell the backend system, no, the card is there within nine feet of that laptop. So card So the final question, which is of course the trillion dollar question is, when is this all going to happen? It sounds good. I mean, it's sometimes we hear about new technology, which always sounds good and doesn't happen, as uh, the, the New York Times piece. When can we start using these pass keys? When are they really going to happen? It's all very well talking about these industry standards, but we want this stuff, and I'm speaking on behalf of the 8 billion people in the world, or certainly the billions on the, on the internet. We want this thing now, Philip. When are we going to get it? It's available today. It's being used in numerous places, it, places you are probably not even aware of in the United States. Large entities have already started deploying the FIDO protocol and ultimately pass keys uh, in the US. Japan has probably had the largest uptake globally. Europe is trailing a little bit, but PSD2, the standard for banking, is going to drive it. Um, I, prognostication, we started this 11 years ago. So I raised the capital. And we started building what became FIDO. We set up the alliance, et cetera. It's been 11 years. I think it's not that, your alliance, Philip. You're just a member, right? We, it's not our alliance. We did found it. We wrote the basis of the protocol. And fundamentally, 
it has taken a long time to get people to come to agreement. Past Are they going to put a statue up for you, Philip? Is there going to be a Dunkelberger statue in the middle of San Francisco? You solved the biggest problem on the internet. Uh, you know, if, if, if that ever happened, I hope they would build it for the guys who thought it up and the guys who actually wrote it. Um, I raised the money and enabled them to do some coding. And I put the money up so that the FIDO Alliance could be stood up. And we could have a standards body to govern it. There's been a lot of fathers of this, and it's taken a while. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more movement now because Apple, Google, and Microsoft are now saying this is the roadway. And this is the future. And a lot of other people are agreeing with them. Uh, they're putting it in. They're starting to use it. Uh, there's a number. There was a company funded today so DevOps teams can build FIDO faster. So more and more DevOps teams are going to have the tool sets to be able to build the FIDO protocol into existing systems. So it's coming. But, you know, I was wrong. I, the, the, given the magnitude of the problem, I was wrong when I raised the initial money. I thought that people would be all over this, white on rice type of thing. And it's just taken a long time to build the standard in and to get the big people to agree that this is a good architectural change. You have been in your, your vast a entrepreneur. You've dealt with a lot of different technologies. It's, you know, obviously from this discussion, how well-versed you are and what's going on out there. And fundamentally now it's force of will as it usually is. This gores a lot of people's ox. There's a lot of people who built a lot of money on supporting passwords, password vaulting companies, uh, people who do knowledge-based authentication, the people who sell SMS tools to people, which are broken, which you know are fundamentally broken, but we're still putting them in at scale. All those things get gored by something like FIDA. So you've got that headwind also. But it's here, it's been supported, it's being built into all of these channels. And it's available and works at scale today. We have five customers with more than 50 million users on their systems using FIDO passkeys today. I say passkeys. They have the ability to use passkeys when they're available. But FIDO itself, all over the world, big names that are using it and doing it successfully, providing security and better usability.